welcome back to another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmal. This is episode 15. If you've made it through 15 episodes with me, wow, that's pretty impressive. And you might be crazy, kind of like me, if you're excited about the same things I am, and you're interested in the same things I am, I, I don't know what that says about either of us. But, um, yeah, the five things I read this week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. Uh, the podcast is hosted there, too. You can also find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. If you check out either of those, please leave a review. I would love to get some feedback. And the algorithms really care about those kinds of things. So, we have five stories today. Surprise. Uh, The first one I'm sending to you is from Russell Moore on his website, russellmoore.com. He published it December 7th of this year, 2017. And it's called, Why I'm Nervous About Driverless Cars. So he begins talking about how he's a father teaching his son, or his sons, how to drive, and wondering how and if this might be the last generation of parents to teach their children how to drive with the advent of self-driving cars that we hear so much about. Um, And it talks about how great this might be, Um, and how it'll be a lot safer, perhaps, because of less human error. Um, But he also talks about how this is going to be very disruptive to a large segment of American society, kind of like it was when factories replaced workers with machines. A lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people kind of left out in the dark. Um, A lot of the traditional great jobs aren't there anymore. Uh, We see that in the Rust Belt, for example, where all those great old manufacturing towns have nothing now. And if you read Hillbilly Elegy, a great book, I highly recommend it, you would see some of the consequences of towns that have lost their jobs, their economies, and their hope. And that's kind of the point that Russell Moore is making here. But he also, um, he brings it to a Christian perspective as well. The crisis would start to be economic, but would end up being spiritual. What may seem episodic in some places is epidemic in others. Notice the hollowing out of entire swaths of the country. The places where industries once thrived and now are gone. In many cases, what has departed is not just wealth, but social cohesion. And that's true. I mean, if you think about any business, where you work or where I work, we all kind of work together and we have an identity as a group of employees who work for a particular employer. Or even if you're self-employed, you have your identity, let's say, as a truck driver. You're an independent truck driver and you haul loads 
all up and down the East Coast. Now, if you're replaced by an automated car, for example, obviously you'll have economic problems, you're out of a job, but the fascinating part, and this is what Russell Moore points out so well, um, that work is intrinsically bound up to our human nature. So, as he says later in this article, we ought to expect something of this as Christians, since the biblical portrait shows us how work is bound up in human nature. That's true in creation, where the primal humanity is given a mission immediately to carry out. This is also true, though, in the new heavens and the new earth, where we're told that we will rule and reign with Christ. So, there's something human about working um, that goes from before the fall to after all is made right and exists now when all is fallen. So there's something intrinsically human about work no matter where we find um, no matter where we find ourselves on that timeline from the beginning to the eternal end. And so you see the economic problems, but then you see these other problems start to come out as people are frustrated by not being able to do what we know as Christians God has designed them to do. Work is intrinsically part of being human. We are wired to do work. Ideally work that we enjoy, obviously, but we're wired to be industrious, to enjoy productivity. I mean, there's a certain satisfaction that comes out of a job well done. I know for me, I feel a lot better after I've had a really productive day than I do after I've had an unproductive day. I just enjoy that feeling of getting stuff done. I don't think it's just me. I think that's a human trait. The Bible supports that and explains human nature in that way. So, as we think about then these self-driving cars and other things like that, people perhaps losing their livelihood, let's say taxi drivers, truck drivers, um, school bus drivers, whatever else it may be. It may be good. Obviously, there are great things that can come of it. But we, particularly as Christians, need to be there to help people deal with this spiritual crisis that they're going to run into when they you know, are are unable to do that which they're wired to do. When people all of a sudden don't have jobs and they're not feeling fulfilled, they're going to need someone to be there for them. And that's a good calling for the church to be in. So this article is from russellmore.com, written surprisingly by Russell Moore. Um, it's called Why I'm Nervous About Driverless Cars, and it was written on December 7th of 2017. Moving on then, we're talking about Facebook next. Um, I have a newspaper article from the Chicago Tribune. Um, it was published on December 13th of 2017. It's called Ex-Facebook VP, Social Media Destroying Society with Dopamine-Driven Feedback Loops and was written by Amy B. Wong. 
So, this was in the news a lot. Um, there are many articles written about this topic. I picked this one from the Tribune, just because I found it gave a nice overview. Um, there was a man who used to work for Facebook in 2007, and he left in 2011 when he was the vice president for user growth. His name is, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to butcher it, Shamath Palahapatiya. Um, and so he was obviously rather high in the organization as a VP for user growth, so it was his job to draw people in, hence the user growth. Um, and he came out and had some pretty uh, strong words to say about his former employer. And here's the, uh, the major quote from him that you've probably heard. Um, I saw it on the news. I saw it on many websites. Um, but here we go. It literally is a point now where I think we have created tools talking about social media in general that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. That's truly where we are. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. And it's not an American problem. This is not about Russian ads. This is a global problem. So, let's think about Facebook, right? I post a picture of me doing something cool. Why do I post it on Facebook? I want people to see it. How do I know people see it? They hit the like button. Because then I feel good. It's that dopamine. That's what we're talking about here. This kind of positive feedback. And so now let's say I post a picture of me and I don't get as many likes. How do I feel about that? Well, I haven't gotten my hits of dopamine. And so I wonder, like, oh, do people not like me? Did I look bad? Like, what was wrong with that picture that made it not as good as the other picture? Um, and we have this feedback loop of where we're constantly driven by how other people perceive us, right? And because of that, well, that lends itself to a lot. Some, like I said in the quote first, no civil discourse, right? We have this, um, this tendency now to grandstand. If I want you to know how I feel about something, I'm going to let you know in no uncertain terms. And certainly there's a time and place for that. I'm not saying we should never debate. What I am saying is that civil discourse in social media is more about the one-hit comment that you can slam someone with. It's more about the sharp retort and the one-liner answer that just shuts down somebody else. And quite frankly, there are very few issues in life where a one-line answer is going to stop a debate. On any of the bigger, complex topics in life, let's take politics, for example. If your answer to, um, I don't know, let's say your answer to gun control is either ban every gun or ban no guns. Yeah, you know, a simple one-line answer. 
you're probably not thinking hard enough about it because it's a very complex issue. It's not a simple one-size-fits-all, you make some witty comment, and then, bam, like, you win. But I want it to be that way because I want people to like what I've written. I want to have that sharp one-liner that people like. It feeds that loop, and I feel good because people have appreciated my wit. People don't appreciate civil discourse. Um, and that goes along with the point about no cooperation, too, obviously. the uh, It's not about like, coming to a mutual understanding. It's about me wrecking you and everybody liking me and not liking your comment because that proves I'm better than you because they liked me and they didn't like you. That's not how society has traditionally worked. Normally it's been, all right, let's reason together then, you know, maybe we'll disagree at the end of the day, and that's fine. It happens. I get it. Not everyone is going to agree on everything. It's not realistic. But we can at least cooperate and do the best we could and try to pursue truth as a unit. But we don't do that on social media because, again, nobody is like, yay, you cooperated. They go, yay, you're fighting. I like your side. I don't like his side. So, again, it doesn't promote cooperation. Uh, misinformation and mistruth. Uh, not a whole lot to say about that beyond what has already been said. Obviously, fake news spreads rapidly. Um, and even not even thinking about the national political level like we talk about it a lot. But how many times have you seen like a rumor posted about one of your friends on Facebook? And you know it's not true, but someone said a dumb rumor, and now it's upset your whole circle of friends. I've seen misunderstandings play out on Facebook all the time. It's not, I mean, yes, there are big issues, like macro issues about politics and things of that nature, but even just think about your day-to-day life. Misinformation and mistruth, it spreads so rapidly. So... I'm not anti-Facebook, as hard as that may be to believe. Um, I use Facebook a lot, partially because it's a great platform to share my writing with people and my podcast with people. Um, But I also do connect with people via social media. So I'm not anti-social media all the way, but these critiques are certainly well taken. We've created this, uh, it's almost like a boxing match. And when you land a punch on someone else, you get the cheers from the audience, just like a boxer would. Um, and so, if I have, you know, a, this kind of confrontational mindset, and it's driven by my ability to land the most punches, and to not be civil, and to not cooperate, and even to say false things because I know people will like it, I mean, you can see where there are problems there. And I don't... I don't really think anybody would deny it. I mean, even the people who still work at Facebook, like Mike Zuckerberg and others, I don't think they deny They realize these are problems. Um, And so perhaps, as Christians then, maybe our application here is, 
I, I'm not saying get off Facebook. I'm not saying boycott Facebook. Um, because I'm not going to do that, and so I'm not going to tell you you should do that. Um, but what I am going to say is perhaps we need to be wise about how we use our Facebook. Maybe we need to be particularly careful about how we interact with other people. Maybe we need to think about Facebook the way we think about face-to-face conversation. Because that's a big difference in my book. When I've seen that happen, you see things online that you would never say to someone in person. I mean, people are yelling at each other and ranting and raving, and you know they'd never say that. They're the best of friends in public, and then they get online and they're ripping each other. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, that's probably... One of the biggest rules of thumb I took from this, where, yes, there is the dopamine problem of likes and loves and wows and all the other emotions you can now um, give to people, but the uh, the bigger problem in this destruction of society probably can be solved by applying the same rules we apply anywhere else. If we do that, I think we're going to have a lot more success, and it might not be the incredible danger that that we we see highlighted by this former vice president of Facebook. So this article is in Chicago Tribune on December 13th of this year, written by Amy B. Wong, and it's called Ex-Facebook VP, Social Media Destroying Society, with dopamine-driven feedback loops. Now we're moving into some controversial territory for the next two articles, so buckle up. Um, This one was from the Imaginative Conservative. It was written on December 11th by Mark David Hall. It's entitled, What the ACLU Gets Wrong About the Separation of Church and State. So, People talk about separation of church and state all the time, uh, particularly from the left. Um, but in terms of politics in general, we really, uh, you know, we talk a lot about this concept of the separation of church and state. And oftentimes the way it's interpreted today, particularly by the ACLU and other organizations today, is that you must keep your religion fully out of politics. And if you have any religious commitment, it should not influence how you legislate whatsoever. And the point of this article from Hall, and here's a quote from him, America's founders did not want Congress to establish a national church. And many opposed establishments at the state level. So first we have to remember that, right? The Constitution is clear that there should not be a national religion, and honestly, I'm fine with that. Most people are fine with that. I don't really know anyone, and I run in a lot of Christian circles who wants, like, a a mandated Christian country. I've talked to a lot of people about this issue, and I've never met anyone who wants that. So, I mean, in line with the Constitution, I mean, anyone who's a Christian, really, 
um, they understand that Christianity is, and your own salvation is a personal thing. It has to be a decision that you make. Um, if it's not like, oh, well, I was born in a Christian country, so I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to heaven, and that would be great. I mean, no Christian really believes that. So, the, you know, having a national religion just doesn't, it doesn't make sense from a Christian worldview because it's not going to help. Certainly, Christians would love to have a nation where everyone freely chose to be a Christian. That would be amazing. Um, if everyone freely chose to follow God as best they could, I, I would like that. A lot of people would like that. Not, and not being state mandated by any means, I would just like people to see reason and understand that Christianity is a worldview that aligns best with our experience of the world. It really does. If you want to debate that, please shoot me an email. Let's talk. Um, it's on my website. There's a contact me page. But I would love it if everyone was a Christian by their own choosing. That's the beautiful part of human free will. Also, the frightening part. People are going to be responsible for the choices they make. And when we, you know, you can choose to accept God or you can reject him. It's kind of like any other religion, right? I reject Hinduism, for example. I'm not a Hindu. I reject Islam. I'm not Muslim. There, I reject atheism. You're probably yelling at me, atheism is not a religion. Yes, it is, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but I reject atheism because I believe there is a God. I mean, we, there are these choices that we all have, right? So no one is really advocating for a state-enforced government. That would be ridiculous. However, and this is the point of Paul's article that I thought was... It puts some uh, some good historical context around the beliefs of the founders. So, more significantly, for understanding the First Amendment, on the day after the House approved the final wording of the Bill of Rights, Elias Boudinot, later president of the American Bible Society, proposed a president recommended day of public thanksgiving and prayer. In response to objections that such a practice mimicked European customs or should be done by the states, Representative Roger Sherman, a Calvinist from Connecticut, whose pastor was Jonathan Edwards Jr., justified the practice of Thanksgiving on any signal event, not only as a laudable one in itself, but as warranted by a number of precedents in Holy Writ. For instance, the solemn Thanksgivings and rejoicings which took place in the time of Solomon after building of the temple was a case in point. This example he thought worthy of Christian imitation on the present occasion. Um, and he would agree with the gentleman who moved the resolution. 
And then, when they wrote, uh, when President Washington made his proclamation on Thanksgiving, he said, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly implore his protection and favor. So, clearly, as we look at this, the founders, the ones who laid out separation of church and state, did not want a state religion. That much is clear. However, they also were very willing to bring their religious beliefs with them to the table. They thought, hey, it would be a great idea to have a day of Thanksgiving. The day after they just said there should be no state religion. So clearly they didn't mean, oh, we can't ever talk about religion. I mean, that would be hunted down if you think about it. Like, one day they're saying, oh, we can't talk about it. What do they do tomorrow? They talk about it. And they make a national proclamation. So clearly they thought they could bring their religious beliefs to the table. Um, but, when we think about this, we really... We have this idea today, perpetrated by the ACLU and others, that the separation of church and state means, oh, if you have a religious perspective or a perspective informed by your religious beliefs, it has no place in politics. It cannot be at all discussed, and it has no value whatsoever. The founders would argue with that. The founders would say, okay, look, we're not naming a state church, but if you can make an argument from religion that people find convincing, okay then. So, for example, let's, uh, back to this idea of Thanksgiving. Clearly, someone could have stood up and said, you know what? We shouldn't do this because this is, you know, we, we don't want to recognize God. Um, but it's not our, our purpose. They could have stood up and done that. They didn't. And they didn't feel like they were contradicting themselves on their Bill of Rights about separation of church and state. But let's even take a, oh, a hot button issue today. I love hot button issues. Let's talk about abortion. In fact, that's going to be our next article. So let's start with it now. Um, so a lot of pro-life arguments revolve around the fact that each individual human life has value. Why does each individual human life have value? Well, for a Christian, or for other religions too, to be fair, it's not just a Christian thing. Believing that humans are created in the image of God, um, and as such, they have intrinsic value. All lives have this value from beginning to the end. Now, is the fact that I'm pro-life entrenched in my religious beliefs? Partially, of course. I mean, it is consistent with my religious beliefs, like I just said. I believe that all lives have value, and as a result, is it any surprise that I 
would be pro-life. Not really. However, no matter what argument I might make after making that admission that yes, it is consistent with my religious beliefs, there are those today who would say, oh, you're not qualified because you're intrinsically biased. Even if I brought forth evidence that they would accept as valid evidence in every other circumstance, they say, oh, his religion must be blind to him. So even if I bring forth all the scientific literature that says that life begins at conception, and it's overwhelming, folks. If you haven't ever reviewed it, you really should. All the evidence that it's pretty blatant and straightforward that life begins at conception. Um, so even if I bring forward scientific proof, they're going to say, oh, well, it, it's a religious argument because it is consistent with my religious belief, and I don't deny that. At the same time, the founders would have said, all right, you know, you have a religious belief, that's fine. If people want to go along with it, they could. Um, but they also wouldn't automatically shut you down just because you have a religious belief. And that's the thing. Now, if your religious belief was something crazy, people might not go along with you. For example, let's say your religious belief was that on days that being with T, it should be absolute anarchy. And there should be no laws because those are holy days and we abide by the God of do whatever you want. And so there should be no laws in honor of that God on that day. Now you could bring forth an argument like that. Um, you know, on a religious basis, just like I could, are people going to agree with you? Probably not. I, I'm going to add on a limb here. Probably not. Um, but it's not the fact that it's a religious argument that automatically means we can't talk about it in legislation. It's, is this a good idea for our country? And for some people, religious arguments will do it. If you happen to be a believer in that religion, that would probably do it. Um, if you're a Christian, you're probably going to be pro-life more often than not. Um, and so that will certainly help push you in that direction. However, if you're not a Christian or a believer in my entirely made-up religion of violence on Tuesday and Thursday, um, then you might have other reasons for supporting or opposing a particular law. For example, if you believe that life begins at conception, even if you don't really have a Christian worldview that talks about the value of life, but you understand the the lack of logic, really, that comes about when you're allowed to kill certain lives, um, even though they just happen to be very early in the developmental process. So even if you just understand that logic, there's a group on Facebook 
um, called Secular Pro-Life, made up of all kinds of believers, non-believers, um, anybody who's pro-life. And it's fascinating because it's not just your Christians and other religious folks who are pro-life. There are atheists who are pro-life because they understand that logic. Um, but see, the separation of church and state, coming back full circle, it was never meant to mean that we can't talk about religion in the state. And it doesn't mean that we can't be influenced by our religious beliefs in the positions we take. I mean, even secularists, and I made this point earlier, and even an atheist has a religion. So it, it's kind of stacking the deck. To say, oh, you can't play by your religion, but I'm going to play by mine. And you know what? I, my religion is the religion of believing in no God. And I can do that. And you should play by my rules and with my deck of cards. Um, but you can't ever appeal to your religion. Um, so when you have this, uh, you know, this scenario coming out, it seems important to realize what the founders actually intended. Bring your beliefs, and if that's the only line of argument you have, some people are going to believe you and agree with you because they share that belief system. Some people aren't because they don't. Or they won't agree with your interpretation of your belief system. Um, There's nothing that intrinsically says that we can't talk about our faith in the public square. That's not what separation of church and state was ever meant to mean. It was simply meant to protect religious expression. And part of that protected expression is our ability to share our convictions wherever we are, whether it's at home, at work, in politics. Um, out in the middle of the street, if you want to, unless you're disrupting traffic, in which case they'll be arrested. But, this article, what the ACLU gets wrong about the separation of church and state, written by Mark David Hall on December 11th from the Imaginative Conservative, and while we're on hot-button issues, abortion, here we go, um, the Federalists, on December 12th, published an article by Holly Shear called Planned Parenthood Drives the Cloak Itself in Religion and Christians Are Having None of It. So this is hilarious, right? Planned Parenthood Action, which is like the fundraising arm of Planned Parenthood, put out this campaign on Facebook um, that basically it was a series of images that you could share with your Facebook friends um, and they all, they had a variety of different messages, but the most ironic one, I'm Catholic and I support access to birth control. I'm sorry, but I, I think if you're Roman Catholic, you probably don't. Um, and, you know, there's a Baptist one, the Lutheran one, and a Muslim one, and the generic Christian one, and a Jewish one, and a random person of faith one. So I guess if you don't know what faith you are, but you have faith in something, 
Um, so, I mean, let's think about what I just thought about separation of church and state. I mean, you think about the arguments Planned Parenthood has made over the years. Don't impose your Christian sensibilities on us just because you believe that life begins at conception. And even though we're denying all the science that it is with you, because we don't like it, um, you know, that's a religious argument. And so I'm, you know, you can't do that. You bad religious people. You hate women. Um, now, it's like, oh, but it's really cool if you're a Christian, if you're a Baptist who supports Planned Parenthood. Like, yay, embrace your Baptist faith. Because that matters after decades of saying, um, you know, religion shouldn't matter in this. Well, now it's like, oh, well, maybe religion should matter. Um, and sheer, she, <laughs> her article is pretty hilarious because she takes Facebook comments from people who wrote back to Planned Parenthood Action about all of these uh, things they posted. And that one from She Brings Joy. It's funny how you guys want to keep religion out of reproductive health debates unless you want to use it incorrectly to pretend you believe it's relevant. Um, another one is... Um, I like this one. It's from um, the, uh, what's the name here? It's a Jackie Gordon Wozniak. And she basically wrote, There you are in spreading lies. Planned Parenthood, do ever tell the truth? It should say, I'm Catholic, and I support natural family planning. Again, that's what I was just talking about. I mean, if you're Catholic, you're probably not big on birth control. But for the other ones, too, um, like, it, it just, it, it blows me away. Because, okay, like, you, you like your abortion, that's, that's fine. It's not fine, really. You shouldn't. And it's wrong. And it's killing lives. But then to try to spin it to say, well, maybe the Baptists and Methodists and Episcopals and Evangelicals and Jewish people and Methodists and Catholics, Protestants and Muslims and random person of faith I don't know who that is, but whatever, that cracks me up. Um, you know what we should do? Now that we've spent years, like, disparaging religious people and telling them how evil they are and how much they hate women and how backward they are and how dare they make decisions for women, well, you know what? Now it's okay. Like, come to the fold because, you know, you're really not that bad. Because clearly, all these people we spent years bashing, they support us. I mean, look, we have a meme, and the meme says it. So it must be 
true. I don't... It, it just blows my mind, really. I mean, whoever the marketer was behind this clearly had no idea, like, what they were talking about at all. I mean, yes, there are some Christians who support abortion rights. I don't get it at all. Um, I don't know how you could do that. But, I mean, is it really smart to be marketing to the people who are probably your most staunch opponents? Uh, I mean, that it just blows me away. Like, Planned Parenthood just doesn't... I don't think they get it. I think they're totally clueless about why anyone would ever oppose them. Um, and so now it's like, all right, you know what? We're a good Christian organization. And you know what? The Baptists over there, they love us, believe it or not. The Catholics are huge on birth control. <laughs> I mean, come on. Terrible. So this article, I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, Planned Parenthood tries to cloak itself in religion, and Christians are having none of it. It was written by Holly Shear on The Federalist, December 12th of 2017. It, <laughs> that article just cracks me up. I mean, come on, guys. Um, but I owe you a fifth article. And sorry we're running a little bit long. Um, I like these topics. I like to talk about them. Um, and I also like, how's this for a segue? I also like Charlie Brown and the Charlie Brown Christmas. Yes, I am 26 years old. And yes, I do have it on DVD. And yes, I do watch it every year. So judge me as you will. Um, but I got this article that I really wanted to talk about since Christmas is coming up by Annie Holmquist, the awesome Annie Holmquist. And it's called How a Charlie Brown Christmas Symbolizes the Triumph of Common Sense. It was written on December 8th um, on Intellectual Takeout, of course. So, I mean, you've all seen the Charlie Brown special on TV. Um, I won't sing to you or try to recite any of it for you. But you get it. Charlie Brown hates commercialism. He doesn't get the real meaning of Christmas. We need a bright, shiny aluminum tree. Oh, no, I want this little one. Believe it or not, I have a little one on my desk at work. Um, an imitation Charlie Brown tree with my Peanuts nativity beside it. Um, but anyway, you know, and then the people realize, hey, it wasn't such a bad tree after all. And everyone's happy because they realize the true meaning of Christmas, which Linus lays out to them on stage and reads the Christmas story, well, recites the Christmas story straight from the Bible. Um, so, but the funny part about this, and some of this I knew and some of it I didn't, is this was basically a, a production that a lot of people didn't have a lot of faith in. Um, Charles Schultz thought, and his crew really didn't think a Charlie Brown Christmas would be successful. Um, they were a little bit nervous out of the networks. According to a historian, Mark Avanier, thought that it 
wasn't on the work networks were against it. Um, it wasn't what this other children's special had to be. Um, Fred Silverman, a former CBS executive, talked about how the music wasn't great. Um, some of the voicing sounded amateurish. Um, and producer um, Lee Mendelson just put it on the air. They were contractually obligated to do so, but thought, meh, you know, we'll run it, whatever, it's done. It was a blast, kind of. Um, but then it was a hit. And almost half of the TV ratings for the evening came in on it. It won an Emmy and a Peabody Award and has been on every Christmas since 1965. Um, and this is what Holmquist talks about, how Charles Schultz is the epitome of the average American. He has... He had a simple common sense, yet often forgotten message to tell in a trolley around Christmas. He insisted on sticking with that message and that simplistic style, even when it looked like it wouldn't get off the ground. And then a little later, the big wigs at CBS, however, thought they knew better, and if time hadn't constrained them, they likely would have attempted to rewrite Schultz's simple common sense production for something more flashy and more politically correct. I mean, you see the story right here of a Charlie Brown Christmas playing out. The simple tree with Charlie Brown, or Charles Schultz and his simple story that was thrown together really quickly. Um, and then you have the flashy aluminum tree that, you know, if they had more time and more budget and had the ability to make it exactly what they wanted, maybe it would have been a little different had the marketing people had their way. Um, but the simple approach won out, and we still love it to this day. I love it. I hope you love it. You really should. Um, and, you know, it, it causes you to think about, okay, maybe we needed, maybe we need more of that simplicity and that common sense, just as a general rule. Um, you know, we have what we know is true, and this really speaks to Christians, I think. Um, we have, I mean, the gospel is a pretty simple message. Jesus came to us, he lived a sinless life, he died, he defeated death, he bore our sin on the cross, but because of his death and resurrection, the grave has been defeated, and we now have the ability to receive salvation as a free gift from God. I mean, it's a pretty basic story, if you think of it. Um, and we believe it's true. After all, we're Christians. That's our, our confession, if you will. However, there are times when people want to make it complicated. They want to add all these bells and whistles that aren't necessarily bad. I mean, there's nothing wrong with bells and whistles, but at the same time, we don't want to lose the beauty and the, the simplicity of what, you know, the gospel is about 
and what our what that faith is about. Um, and this is kind of where Holmquist leaves us. Um, in the current culture of chaos, it's easy to throw up our hands and give in to the demands of those who stand out and seemingly hold the shots. But instead of giving in to political correctness, do we need to take a page from Charles Schultz's book? In the end, will gentle persistence, common sense, and faithful adherence to solid principles be the pathway to success and fulfillment? And I think maybe it will be. The gospel has survived 2,000 years plus. Um, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And it's a, it's a basic message, but it appeals to people in that common sense. It makes sense. The world's a messed up place. We need an answer for why the world is the way it is. There's an answer for that from a Christian worldview. There's a basic message of how that problem was fixed. Jesus Christ. So, I encourage you to check out this article as well, um, written by Annie Holmquist. I, I don't know if she's ever heard me on the podcast, um, but I say her name a lot. She writes great stuff on intellectual takeout. Um, and this article was written on December 8th, How a Charlie Brown Christmas Symbolizes the Triumph of Common Sense. Sorry I ran a little bit long tonight, guys, but I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I will see you again on December 23rd. Wow, right before Christmas. Um, we'll have to do a heavy Christmas-themed episode, I suppose. So, have an excellent week, and good night.